Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. I was helping my son do some trim work on a house that he had built. Um, We were laughing, having a good time, cutting wood and putting it in. It was really kind of a pleasant day, cool outside, doors were open. A lady from the neighborhood just walks into the house. I guess she wanted to walk around and see what we were doing. She walks in, she starts looking around, and it's like she's a building inspector or something. And she walks over to a spot where we haven't trimmed it yet, and she said, I hope you plan to do something about that. And we're and my son was so gracious, he was like, Yes, ma'am, we just haven't gotten there yet, but we're gonna get to that. And she said, Well, you know, I see flaws. That's what she said, literally. And we thought she was talking about the house, but she was talking about herself. She said, I see flaws. She said, I can walk into a room and I can tell you everything that's wrong. And she was talking about it as if it were some sort of spiritual gift. You know, I have the spiritual gift of criticism. I see flaws. And and then she walked out of the house and it was interesting. We started grumbling. Who was that? What is she doing? What does she think she's doing? You know, and what I suddenly realized is, That woman had walked into a house filled with laughter and smiles and walked out and left it with grumbling and frustration. And she, for me, epitomizes an idea about people that I wanted to share with you this morning. There are people in your world who I call smile stealers. Now, some of them will steal everyone's smile. They're the kind of person that can walk into a room and just suck the smile right off of every face before they're done. You know that kind of person. It's always a joy when they leave, right? There are other people who seem to only want to steal your smile. They're only after your smile. And I know this sounds crazy, but you can have people in your life who seem to find joy in taking yours. Now, they may be normal with everyone else, But with you, they know how to push the button, say just the right words, do just the right thing. You can be having a great day, and suddenly they can steal your smile. Years ago, Joyce Landorf wrote a book called Irregular People. If you ever get your hands on a copy of that, that's kind of the point she makes, that we all have irregular people in our lives who make life miserable for no apparent reason. And there are smile stealers who do that. And I think... They find their smile by taking yours. Um, Some take our smiles not so much by what they do as by what they don't do. Sometimes they steal your smile through disappointment and broken promises. And that's what Paul was dealing with in chapter uh, 2 of Philippians, looking down at verse 19. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's go to Philippians again. We're talking about joy. And one of the hard things about joy is it's hard enough to maintain joy But then there are people in our lives that seem to want to take it away from us, right? The smile stealers. And you run into them in a variety of different ways. Now remember, joy is not circumstantial. That's happiness. Joy is residual because joy is based on faith. And it works like this. No matter what happens in my life, I know that God loves me. I know God has a plan for me. 
And so I know that in the end, this is going to work out for my good. We're back to Romans 8, 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. And so joy becomes an act of faith. It becomes a very powerful, important part of faith because it really demonstrates uh, the nature of who Jesus Christ is. And I think that's why it's so important. That's why God saw to it that a book was filled with counsel to rejoice because as believers, there is nothing quite so magnetic as a life that's filled with joy and a face that's covered with a smile. And yet sometimes it's hard for us because we want the feelings of joy to be wed to the faith of joy. And when that happens, we have what Paul calls complete joy. And we talked about that, right? But those feelings of joy can so quickly go away. I mean, we can be having a great day, and then all of a sudden we're struggling with personal joy. And then add to that, here comes a smile stealer. And sometimes it's by what they do, and sometimes it's by what they don't do. And sometimes it's through disappointment and broken promises. That's where Paul was. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, he says, uh, But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. So Timothy's his disciple, protege. He wants to send Timothy to Philippi. He says, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So he's not just sending Timothy with this letter to bring his counsel, but he's also very concerned about the spiritual welfare of that church. But watch his bitter assessment of the rest of his team. He says in verse 20, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely... Be concerned for your welfare. I'm like, wow, that's harsh. I mean, Paul was clearly disappointed with his team because sometimes people disappoint us and they take our joy, and I think that's what happened here. Now, of course, there's balance to this. I think we have to always uh, mitigate this with dealing with our unrealistic expectations. You can go back to the first part of Philippians chapter 2 where he says, consider one another as more important than yourself. And so you don't want to always be laying these unrealistic expectations on people or you're always going to be disappointed with somebody, right? I mean, people are people. They're going to mess up. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to forget about you. They're going to get busy. Get over that. But in Paul's case, this is serious stuff. This is not just that the kids haven't called in a while or dad promised to take me fishing and work got in the way again. This is kingdom stuff. This is eternal stuff. He's got a very important... Uh, mission he needs someone on the team to do and so he calls them together I can just picture the scene and he says look I've got this important letter I'm desperate to get it to the Philippians here I am in Rome in jail I take it myself but I can't go will any of you guys go for me and when he asks that question I mean it's crickets silence now in their defense Philippi is like 800 miles away on foot with a sea crossing, uh, a lot of hard up and down hikes through mountains and hills. Uh, Google estimates that the one-way travel on foot is 215 hours. <laughs> you know, that'd be like me going, hey, look, I, there's a church up in Chicago, and I need somebody to carry a letter. Who wants to walk it up there for me? 
No, every head's down. They're trying to come up with the excuse, you know, I think my mother-in-law's coming next week, and, you know, we were going to take the kids to the Coliseum, you know. We promised them that. You know, I'm kind of feeling a scratchy throat. I don't know if I could make that long walk. Nobody volunteers. Paul's furious. Finally, Timothy steps up and says, hey, Paul, I'll do it again. And he was deeply disappointed to the point, look at verse 21. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, be careful here. Don't be too harsh on Paul's harshness. I mean, this is kind of like a football coach when, you know, <laughs> you're the blindside tackle and you give one of those lookout blocks, you know. It's like you, you jump up and the guy goes right by you and you, you turn around the quarterback and go, look out, because he's coming. That quarterback gets demolished. That coach is not going to go, oh, buddy, try better the next time. That's when the coach loses his mind and said, you're going to get your quarterback killed. Well, this is way more important than a football game. And I think we need to realize that when you're in battle, you have to be able to count on your fellow soldiers. Listen to Proverbs 25, verse 19. It says, like a bad tooth or an unsteady foot, is confidence in a faithless man in times of trouble. Man, I know that right now better than I ever have. Last week, half of my feeling fell out. And so I had to go to the dentist, and he had to take out the rest of the feeling. But in doing that, he had to kind of clean it out. And when it was over, he showed me the x-ray, and he said, okay, see this little spot right here? That's the nerve. He said, you're right up against that nerve. Now, I've put some medicine in there, and I'm, and I'm trying to get it to, to be okay, but if that thing starts really hurting, you're going to need to call Daniel Cassis, who does root canals. And I was like, oh, brother, here we go. And so he put the filling back in. I went home, the anesthesia wore off, and every time I forget about that tooth and bite down on that side, I get a strong reminder of a bad tooth. There's a few things worse than a bad tooth, right? Or an unsteady foot. Every time, you, you know, you have sprained your ankle, you forget you got an ankle sprain. Or, or, you know, you kick some furniture in the middle of the night with your toes, you got a broken toe, and every time you forget, uh, it reminds you. Paul said, that's the way a faithless man is in times of trouble. And so there's a harshness to this that I think is legitimate. So how do you keep your smile when someone has disappointed you like this? What did Paul do? I think, first of all, you acknowledge it. You don't pretend it didn't happen. You know, you've got somebody in your life who has hurt you deeply. You don't pretend that you're not hurt. You say, hey, that, that really hurt, and, uh, and I'm struggling with it. You don't pretend it didn't happen. But look, you move on. Rather than dwelling on the disappointment, Paul mentioned it, and then he moved on. He starts blessing Timothy. Look at verse 22. But you know of his proven worth, he's talking about Timothy, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself will be able to come shortly. Paul's like, if I get out of jail, guys, I'm going to head there myself. And then he starts to bless uh, Epaphroditus, uh, verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus was a Philippian. He came from Philippi. He brought an offering to Paul there in the Roman imprisonment so that Paul would have food to eat. And it was a vital offering, and it really helped Paul. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 4. But it's interesting because in the process of doing that, 
Epaphroditus got very sick. In fact, he got sick to the point of death. They thought he was going to die. And God spared his life, but word got back to Philippi that Epaphroditus was going to die, and Paul wants them to know he's okay. And so he begins to elevate Epaphroditus to these guys, which is interesting to me because of his name, Epaphroditus. That's, a, that's, of course, a Greek name, but it comes from two words, epi, which means on, epidermis, on the outside, and uh, Aphrodite, which was the Greek goddess of love. And I think that tells you something of his origin story of his background. He came up from a family that was deeply committed not only to the pantheon of of the Greco-Roman world, so these are very pagan parents, but they picked out that one God or goddess among that whole group who was herself the most hedonistic and sensual and immoral of all the other gods, Aphrodite. And and they named him by Aphrodite on Aphrodite, you know, Epaphroditus. And so that really, to me, speaks to the transformation that's occurred in this guy's life, that although he grew up in this very pagan, non-Christian, immoral environment, here he is walking with Jesus, and Paul's blessing him. Look, my brother, he calls him, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who's also your messenger and minister in my need, because he's longed for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And he says, sick to the point of death. Skip down to verse 29. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Man, there's a powerful principle here. And that is when people disappoint you, forgive and move on. Focus your energy on the faithful people in your life. That's the only way you're going to maintain joy. That's the only way you're going to be able to maintain the smile. It's like, yeah, you hurt me, but look at all these people that bless me. One of the problems we have is that one critic can get so much more presence in your headspace than all the people who say wonderful things to you and all the people that love you and all the people that bless you. You're only going to focus on that one. In chapter 3, Paul deals with a different kind of smile stealer. This isn't someone close who disappoints or offends. These are more distant, and they're on the attack. And and here's the principle, too. Sometimes the smile stealer will attack you. Look at verse 1. In this case, it was Jewish legalists who were pressing Paul to return to the Mosaic law. He said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard to you. He says, finally. Now, he's not wrapping up, okay? It's like the preacher that says, finally, and then he talks for 30 more minutes. In in this case, that idea is above everything else. Um, He's reemphasizing the main point. He's not not wrapping it up. He's reiterating the central idea. Finally, let's not forget what's so important. And what is it? Rejoice in the Lord. Don't forget to rejoice in the Lord. And notice it's in the Lord. It's not in your stuff or your circumstances or some other person or some life experience. It's in the Lord. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, hey, look, I know, I know I'm repeating myself. But it's, it, it, I, I need to keep saying this because it's a safeguard to you. Why is it a safeguard? Because there's smile stealers out there. And if you let them, they're going to take your joy. They're going to steal your joy, wreck your life, and ruin your witness. So look what he calls them, verse 2. Beware of the dogs, 
Finally, rejoice in the Lord. I, I know I keep saying this, but it's important because it's a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. See that? Man, he's not pulling any punches. These guys are dogs. And he calls them evil workers. He said they work evil. He, he Look, we need to come to terms with this. These aren't people who are just, you know, people doing bad things. The, these, these aren't people who are doing ill-advised things. This is evil. And he says, beware of the false circumcision. They're false. And that's so important to remember because the lies are so compelling, you start to doubt yourself. And here's something that struck me. The pressure that Paul felt was from the religious community to keep more rigidly a set of rules. That was the legalism. That's what he felt. But it occurred to me that our problem is just the opposite. The pressure you're going to feel is the pressure to abandon God and stop telling people what he said about how we should live. Because we live in a world that says, my lifestyle is my choice, and there is no right or wrong. The only person that's wrong is the person who tells me I'm wrong. And so the only absolute truth is that you're absolutely wrong if you say there's absolute truth. And man, if you dare to cross that crowd, It'll hit you like a 12-pound hammer. I've never known a time in our world where there was more intolerance in our nation. And, and the tactic of the enemy has changed. The strategy has changed, but his purpose has not changed. He still wants to steal your smile. So here's the overarching point of what he says. You have enemies. Those enemies want to stop what you're doing. They want to steal your joy. Don't let them. Never stop rejoicing. You got it? You say, okay, well, how do we do that? How do we move forward in grace and joy when we live in a world where we feel like we're under attack? I mean, let's be honest. And I've got to say this. 20 years ago, I couldn't see this. It seemed like the trouble in the church was its own making. We would fight within over all these different things, charismatic and, and Calvinism, and we'd invent ways to, to, to find ways to divide ourselves and to fight among ourselves so that we could keep the thing constantly stirred up. We're like that line out of Pogo, you know, we have met the enemy and they are us. But all of that changed about 10 or 15 years ago, and this secularization of culture began to really take root and the opposition to the church and to God and the things of God really began to come into, into sharper contrast and focus. And today, we don't have the luxury of internal battles because the battle is outside. And there are, you have an enemy that wants to steal your joy. So what are you going to do about it? I'd say the first thing is this, and don't listen to them. Look at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision. That's Paul. We're the true. Who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So you can hear the argument. You know, those Jewish legalists were saying, we have the circumcision. We're the elect of God. We're the chosen We've got the Mosaic law. We keep the traditions. We keep the rituals. We keep the festivals. 
We're the ones. And Paul's like, you know what? We're the true circumcision. What he was saying there is, I'm not listening to that stuff. Circumcision is a synonym for standing in a right relationship with God. They were saying, we've got it right, you've got it wrong. And it's easy for that kind of stuff to affect you. And after a while, you might doubt your convictions. This is especially true in modern culture. And that's what we're seeing among the Gen Z and the millennials is like, man, I'm really not sure about this God thing anymore. I'm really not sure about this moral thing anymore. Everybody in my world is telling me something different. Maybe I am wrong. Paul didn't listen to them for a second. He said, we're the true circumcision. Look, when smile stealers accuse you, you you don't listen to them. Some of the best advice I ever received. I had this guy in my church who hated the way I preach. He just hated it. He would come up to me and he would go, God's going to hold you accountable for all them jokes and stories you tell. And that's exactly the tone he would use. And, uh, you know, it felt like I, I needed to be more hellfire and damnation kind of stuff. And my commitments to, to teach is to teach the whole counsel of God. I want to open the book up and I want to let the book say what the book says. And we're going to walk through that. If it talks about judgment, we'll talk about judgment. But if it talks about joy, we'll talk about that. Is that okay? Now, look, that's not everybody's cup of tea. I know there's a lot of people who they don't feel like they've been to church unless they walk out feeling bad about themselves. And I get that. That's why we have all different kinds of churches, right? But this guy's on me, man. And And, you know, it's hard not to listen to criticism even when you deflect it the first 500 times. And it just so happens I was at Dallas Seminary at the time and I was working on my doctor's degree. And and part of the the program was I had to do a preaching homiletics course. And uh, my mentor, Dr. Reed, was my my advisor and instructor. And uh, Dr. Reed was super complimentary of me, particularly my preaching style and he, he was very affirming, and uh, he said to me one day, he said, I bet your church really loves to hear you speak. And I, I thought about that guy, and I said, well, I don't know about that. Not, I, not all of them. And then I told him about this guy and had been on me about jokes and stories and all that, and, you know. And Dr. Reed got super serious, like he really wanted to nail this down, like he wanted to be sure that he left no room for doubt in me. He leaned in and he said, don't listen to him for even a second. He's wrong. And that was liberating to me because here was a guy who I trusted and admired who was encouraging me to be who God made me to be. And I I can't say you need people like that in your life. You need somebody in your life to say, don't listen to them for even a second. They're wrong. And everything about what they're saying is wrong. Paul's saying, we're the true circumcision. We got this right. Look, here's here's what I came to realize. You don't have to love them. I mean, you have to love them. You don't have to listen to them. So don't listen to them. Secondly, don't fixate on them. Notice Paul doesn't name any of his enemies. He calls them dogs and evil workers, and that's it. He leaves it alone. 
He'd had a two-year running battle with these guys. It had started in Jerusalem, really started before that. But when he went to Jerusalem, they had him arrested. They said things about him. They said he was preaching sedition against Rome, which was a capital offense, could get him killed. When that didn't work, they, they hired a hit squad to try to kill him themselves. They dragged him. When that didn't work, they made sure that they played the legal system and kept him in prison for two solid years in a place called Caesarea, where he's waiting and they're manipulating the system. They're gaming the system. They're paying off officials. They're doing everything to subvert justice, to turn, to weaponize the legal system, to keep Paul pinned down, to try to stop everything that he's doing. And you can't tell me he doesn't know who those guys are. You can't tell me he doesn't know who the lawyer is. You can't tell me he doesn't know the names of every one of those guys that has stood in court and spoken against him. You can't tell me he doesn't know that, but he doesn't mention any of that. He says, they're a bunch of dogs doing evil. And then he left it alone. He wouldn't fixate on them. And there's a, there's a lesson here because what we do is we replay the tape over and over and over and we become obsessed with it. And when you become consumed with them, you will be consumed by them. And they start living in your head rent free. Forgive them. Let, let it go and move on. That's what, what he did with his disappointment in chapter two. That's what he did with his enemies in chapter three. And then the final thing, keep looking forward. Look at Verse 4 of chapter 3, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. He said, these guys are all about the flesh. He said, Listen, I have more confidence than anybody. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more so circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Paul said, looking back, man, I, I get it. I was there. I lived that same miserable life they're promoting. I was a smile stealer. Paul had wiped the smile off of a lot of Christian faces. But he also knew the bitterness and emptiness of all of it. Because look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost. I want to come back around to this next week because this is such an important passage. But I want to stay on the main topic, which is don't let them take your joy don't give the smile stealers space. You got to continue to look forward. That's what Paul did. Whatever things were gained to me, I've counted as loss. Look at verse 8. More than that, I'll count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but, uh, circle that word, rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Let me, just, let me just say, in the original, that word is scubalon. And I'll talk maybe a little bit more about it next time. But that word does not mean rubbish. It means manure. Paul is saying, I count all of it as dung. And there are some who think that maybe the words were a little stronger than that. Like I said, the battle today is different. It's not a religious battle. The battle today is secular, atheistic, amoral, naturalistic. When I say naturalistic, what I mean by that is it's not humanistic. They don't elevate humanity anymore. They say we are part of nature. No, we're not supreme over nature. We're simply a part of nature. That's why they'll worry more about losing the eggs of a spotted owl than they will losing the life of an unborn child. 
Because we're not preeminent. We're naturalistic, atheistic, immoral. And the mantra of postmodernism is simply this. There is no God. There are no rules. Do the best you can. Try to enjoy yourself. Consider a popular song by uh, Avicii, The Night. Came out a few years ago. It's, it's sort of regained traction with Instagram and TikTok being played a lot on their videos. Here's the lyrics. One day my father told me, son, don't let it slip away. He took me in his arms. I heard him say, when you get older, your wild heart will live for younger days. Think of me whenever you're afraid. He said, one day you'll leave this world behind. So live a life you will remember, my father told me. Hmm. One day you'll leave this world behind, so live a life you'll remember. How are you going to remember it? You're gone. But that's kind of it. Uh, What you're hearing is eat, drink, and be merry, because someday you're going to be gone. And sadly, the guy that wrote those words committed suicide at the age of 28. How about these lyrics from One Direction, the song Live While We're Young. Hey, girl, it's now or never. It's now or never. Don't overthink. Just let it go. And if we get together, yeah, get together, don't let the pictures leave your phone. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, we'll be doing what we do, just pretending that we're cool. So tonight, let's go crazy, crazy, crazy till we see the sun. I know we only met, but let's pretend it's love. And never, never, never stop for anyone. That's it. No God, no rules. Live for yourself. Pretend life makes sense. Don't ever let anyone tell you what you're doing is unwise or immoral. There's no right or wrong except the person that says you're wrong. Stuff's not new, man. My early days were spent in that world. By the end of my high school days, it was a drug-fueled blur. They made a movie about my high school days. Only instead of being set in North Texas, it was set in Austin, Texas, 1976, The title of the movie, Dazed and Confused. If you ever want a description of my high school, me and everybody I went to high school with, that's it, Dazed and Confused. I had a T-shirt that I wore every time it was clean enough to wear to school. On the front, it said, U.S. Treasury Department's Narcotics Division. On the back, there was a big pot plant, and it said, take a break. That was my world. Me and everybody in it, we were as filled with rebellion. And here's what it was. We were convinced we were right. We were intolerant toward anyone that said we were wrong. We loved to see other people join the party, but we were lost and empty and broken inside. And we perfectly fit the description of verse 18. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That was us in 1977. That is us in 2022. And that will forever be the nature of things. They will attack your faith. They'll say you're wrong. Don't listen. They're praying you won't listen. Because they're so empty and broken inside, they don't have any idea except to do what they've always done. Don't fixate. Don't give them free rent in your head. Remember who you are. 
Look up, look ahead, look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And here's the objective, here's the future. We keep looking forward. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Isn't that beautiful? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Remember who you are. Remember where you're going. Remember what God has done in your life and what God wants to do with your life and what God will ultimately do to your life. Verse 24, our citizenship is in heaven from which, also we, we, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the extension of the power that has even to subject all things to himself. And every time I think of those words, I smile. And God fills my heart with joy one more time. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord always and never let him have your smile. Can you do it? Let's do it together. Let's pray. Father, we struggle sometimes to hold on to our smile and there are people who seem to be good at getting it from us. I pray, Father, that we would stop listening to them. Stop fixating on them. And instead, focus our mind on what you have done for us, what you are doing in us, and what you will do to us. That you would be glorified through our joy. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.